Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton City staff are calling for a $200,000 study into Hamilton's entertainment venues. An article in the Globe and Mail alleges that Ron Tavener met with Premier Ford multiple times leading up to his appointment as OPP commissioner. And Donald Trump is denying a report that says he took extensive steps to hide details of his talks with Vladimir Putin. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton Council is uh, being asked now by city staff uh, to spend another $200,000. Money's going to come from a reserve fund for another, yet another, study about the big three city-owned facilities. These are the entertainment facilities. Those being, of course, First Ontario Concert Hall, a.k.a. Hamilton Place, First Ontario Centre, formerly known as Cops Coliseum, and, of course, the Convention Centre. Uh, this thing has been studied and studied and studied, and, and I think an awful lot of us are just wondering why another study is even necessary. Maybe it's time for some next steps. Uh, to that end, we're uh, pleased to welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to give us his views on this. Mr. Mayor, good morning, and thanks for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Uh, let me ask you about this as a request at this stage. Council hasn't taken any action on this, but has this thing been studied enough? Isn't it about time to start looking and seeing just who we can partner with and what we're going to build here? Well, I think that's the I think that's the point. Um, you know, I mean, uh, we haven't really come to come to a conclusion on you know whether we ought to repurpose the uh, facilities or start a, start anew. Or you know, I think there was some analysis done a while ago that our our convention centers were too small, and that uh, we weren't able to compete for the mid-sized one. And there and and all of them are, you know, 70s uh, 70s vintage buildings that uh, you know require now additional investment and. Uh, uh, so and repair. So we we are in that kind of situation where we have to make a fundamental decision. What uh, what do we do next? And if we go forward on a, on an alternate plan, who who will be a partner in this? Because I think there's a reluctance to put city money into this, uh, and there's more of an interest and appetite to have the private sector participate in this in a much more significant way. And that's really the analysis that we want to get to: is how what kind of partnership can we develop? That will uh, give us uh, either a repurposed facility or a larger convention center. Uh, where might might that happen? On what lands? And and who would be a partner in that moving forward? And how do we, uh, you know, obviously protect and ensure that the cost of the taxpayers is minimal and that the benefits are going to be, uh, you know, long long lasting and enduring? But isn't that only going to happen if you run this thing up the flagpole and see who from the private sector uh, responds? Yeah, and I think uh, I think uh, I mean there, there's a preliminary step to to go through, and that is really to to create a, uh, a kind of a master plan on where where do we go next. So I, I don't think anyone has an answer as to what we do with uh, an aging arena that has uh, you know has has served us uh, particularly well for concerts. Was originally built, as you well know, for the promise of NHL that has never materialized. And now is needing you know, significant investments to uh, get it either up to date or in, in state of good repair. We're spending about eleven million dollars uh, this year for the elevators and escalators that have been, uh, you know, in state of disrepair. So we we need to have a functional building. But like, uh, you know, like your home or any other place, uh, you know, at, at a given point in time, you start to wonder how much money, more money, should we continue to put into repairs as opposed to looking at something new or something alternative that uh, can fill, fit the bill, still provide hockey, still provide concerts. Uh, does it all happen to have to happen on the Cops Coliseum site? And how can we uh, take advantage of some of the air rights that it inherits in terms of the convention center? And what that what would that mean in terms of the investments that the private sector might be willing to make to uh, to enhance 
what they can generate in terms of revenue and what we can uh, use in terms of convention facilities that are going to be useful for us for, you know, medium-sized conventions going forward. But, again, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is, is I think we've studied this thing to death already. Uh, I think everybody remembers now that a little while ago, the previous council, of course, hired Jasper Kajavsky, and Jasper put a consortium together of people mm-hmm. uh, to study this thing. And, and, and they did good work, and I think they gave you some very valuable information uh, right. that I think would serve the foundation of this. And, and you know, they're to be congratulated for the, the, the work that they did and the study that they did and uh, when you get into this. But as you've just mentioned, Mr. Mayor, uh, the convention center is old and too small. It's not, you know, nothing's going to change. That's that's what this report's going to say again. Uh, the arena is, well, let's face it, your major tenant's already looking for another location, which tells you that it's probably not a very viable option. Uh, I, I, I think Hamilton Place uh, is probably salvageable as a concert hall, but I, th- right. there's a major thing going to have to happen here, and I don't know that we need to, f- to dis- determine any more about the condition of these buildings. We already know that, and I think Mr. Kajavsky's report gave the city a number of different options as to what they do, and even costed it out for them. We've been there, done that. No, I, I think we've, we've analyzed the conditions of the buildings. Uh, you know, there are, there are a number of options in, uh, inherent in those reports that were identified. The question then becomes, what do we land on? Uh, you know, and that, that really is kind of the open question here. So I think the, uh, you know, the additional analysis and review that needs to be done here is, who are the partners out there? What kind of play do they uh, they they want to make? Uh, you know, are, is there broader interest in terms of Yale properties or city center to look at? Uh, you know, a broader 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 analysis in terms of uh, the developments that they're facing. You know, the mall is uh, is challenged right now in terms of retail, and that's uh, that's changing significantly. And uh, and we know that the the city center, which uh, I think is in the process of being uh, reacquired has had its ongoing challenges in terms of use and, you know, what happens there. So we want to we look at it in, in a broader sense, not just on a facility-to-facility basis, and, and look at that broader precinct and say, okay, now that we know, you know, the, the, the state of the condition of the facilities, uh, we, we have a pretty good idea where we need to go in terms of the convention center facility. Uh, you know, the arena is a little bit more complicated because, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in betwixt and between in terms of wanting a venue that uh, will allow for a 17 or 16 or 18,000 uh, person concert venue. And at the same time, it's deemed to be, uh, you know, too big for the kind of hockey that uh, attendance that we're seeing in the OHL right now. And I think we have a Michael Andelauer, who was our you know, long, long-serving uh, OHL uh, 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 team owner that has been fantastic in terms of continuing to provide hockey here. Who also has a vision in terms of uh, you know an alternate facility. So I think the I think the next analysis really needs to look at how do we package all that together and come up with a plan that uh, that can work for all of those elements. And that you know that's a pretty complex uh, arrangement of uses and part partnerships that uh, I think is going to take some effort to pull together. You know, I think you've touched on maybe a greater problem that not too many people have wanted to focus on here. As you mentioned, that whole precinct, which I guess is the the phrase of the day these days, uh, it's Mm -hmm. not just the arena, it's not just the concert hall or the convention center, uh, it's it's the retail around there, and it was a vision, of course, that was struck back in the late 60s, early 70s, to say Mm -hmm. this is what urban renewal was going to look like, you know, tear down old Mm -hmm. buildings, let's put this stuff up. Uh, I think now, in hindsight, we understand that that kind of planning was wrong-headed, uh, and we're mm-hmm. stuck with this right now. So I, I, I guess the big question here is: Do we just tear this whole thing down and start all over again? Or, or I mean, it, it, I, I think trying to fix this facility up is like putting duct tape on this. I mean, you can only do it for so long. 
Yeah, no, exactly right, and 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 that's really the the challenge here is that uh, you know back in the back in the sixties, I remember I had a meeting with the Michelle brothers who uh, who admitted to me that they thought even though they ended up being the developer of Jackson Square and that whole you know redevelopment uh, process, which included expropriation and you know everything that went with it in terms of that whole area. Uh, they thought that putting them all in the core of our city was uh, wrong-headed, uh, but you know they were they were uh, you know contracted to do it, so they went ahead and built it. Um, I think now we found that uh, you know the, it is not in sync with uh, where the city is going. Uh, there's much more interest in in terms of residential and mixed use, so not just isolating retail, but actually incorporating residential in with retail and enter- entertainment uses. So there's a really there's a totally different concept on the table today, and I think coming together and figuring out the uh, the, the 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 broader step forward is not going to be a simple issue, but it, it's going to require partnerships. And that's where the uh, the complications begin, and that's where we need a lot more analysis and review and a lot more work with the partners that are out there to come up with a vision that uh, that uh, can, will stand the test of time for the next 50 or 60 or 70 years. What about a road trip? I, and, and I'm not trying to be flippant about that, but I mean, you know, when, when there was a discussion about what we were going to do vis-a-vis LRT, I know a number of councillors went and visited different cities and, and got a look at what was going on and talked to some of the representatives in those cities and say, how did you guys do this? What were the challenges? Uh, maybe maybe something in, of that ilk should be done here. I mean, there are some great examples. Winnipeg's got an incredibly fantastic uh, uh, convention center. Ottawa's and, and Toronto's, obviously, but I mean, Toronto's mm-hmm. in a different league, obviously, because they get money from the federal and provincial governments for most of their stuff, and that's not right. going to happen here. But but is there an, an opportunity here for us to learn how other people have done this and how they've basically jumped ahead of us now because of some of the things they've done in the last 10 years? Absolutely there is. And, uh, you know, one of the models is actually Ottawa. And, uh, you know, they, they did a pretty, you know, impressive uh, stadium replacement on a private sector uh, model that uh, allowed for a lot of residential commercial development around it, whereby they actually ended up getting the stadium thrown in. So it didn't really cost the taxpayers anything. I think that's the model that I think uh, we need to go forward on, that uh, that we marry the interests of the private sector with the the public sector, and uh, and there's a lot of models out there that we could uh, we have looked at, in fact. So not, not only Toronto, uh, you know, Ottawa, what's happening in Winnipeg and Edmonton, even Vancouver, you know, they've all had uh, you know plans put together to kind of repurpose their convention facilities. Uh, even London, uh, you know, is a uh, is a comparator that we uh, compete against, actually, and something that we have to bear in mind in terms of our facilities, our entertainment facilities, as well as our, as, as our convention facilities. So, there's a lot of models out there, and I think the uh, the art of this will be to have a look at, you know, what 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 actually would work in Hamilton. You know, you can't you can't transplant a model from somewhere else and bring it here, but what you can do is uh, is take the beneficial elements out of them and uh, see if you can incorporate them into. Uh, our, our development. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's really not, you know, a, a complicate, complicated formula. It's really about mixed use. And so, to date, this whole downtown complex is, is a total commercial enterprise. So it's hotel, it's uh, office buildings, and it's retail. Uh, what we need to do is uh, add the other component that is uh, going to add vibrancy to all of this, and that is the residential component. The moment you do that, then you really start envisioning a, a, a different layout. Uh, you're, you're talking about actually using some of the airspace above the facilities, and you know, with the uh, most of the mall isn't uh, high rise, so we we could do a lot more density there. And so, the moment you start to incorporate commercial, entertainment, and residential together, then you're talking a, uh, I think, a go forward position that benefits the private sector, 
uh, affords people the opportunity to live close to entertainment and retail, and uh, you know brings a, a certain amount of vigor and uh, vibrancy to the to the downtown area that uh, I think we're all looking for. I'm glad you brought up the Ottawa area. I mean, I, I know the Lansdowne area quite well. I used to visit there constantly to, to go see football games back in the day. I, I had relatives yep. that lived up there. It was an old, mm-hmm. tired, dilapidated neighborhood, and I've seen the rejuvenation now, not just since yep. the new stadium, but the retail and commercial and residential development that surrounds that area now. But right. if you're to follow that, and I understand, Mr. Mayor, that you say, okay, we can't just say, okay, let's take this and, and, and drop it into Hamilton and make it work here. This has to be mm-hmm. a made-in-Hamilton solution. But is it inevitable here that we're going to come to the conclusion after all this that we're going to, look, knock this stuff down and start all over again? Well, that depends. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I, did, I, mean, I liken it to, uh, to you know, you, you're evalu- evaluating your own home. I mean, if you can... Do what they did at Maple Leaf Gardens, for instance, and they've they've actually uh, you know saved an ice ice platform and at the same time introduced uh, you know commercial convention facilities over and above that facility because there's so much airspace there. I mean, there's all kinds of different options that you could look at beyond you know throwing away what you've already built. So uh, you know, it's it's I don't think that's a given. I think it's an option that we need to consider and put on the table. I think that after that it becomes an economic equation. What what makes sense here? You know, if it's going to cost 40 or 50 or 60 million dollars to repurpose the arena and it's going to cost, uh, you know, 300 or 400 plus to actually rebuild, then you might be looking at uh, how can we repurpose it and, uh, you know, save the taxpayers some money and it's still come up with the, the same kind of uh, use that we're, we're hoping to get to. So I'm, I, I think the economics will dictate where we go. Um, uh, it, if it makes sense to knock it down and start over again, that's certainly an option that uh, we, we need to consider and look at. Uh, I think it'll have a lot to do with how much uh, resources the private sector is prepared to put on the table and whether or not there's a, there's an efficiency in terms of how we uh, utilize the dollars that are available. We know that there are some corporate sponsors that have been involved in the process so far, and, and some of them have been expressed an interest in maybe being involved in the next phase and ultimately maybe in the redevelopment of some of these areas. Uh, and, and that's wonderful because we know that these are, are people that have a great interest in the city. But when you get down to looking to see who the partners are going to be, uh, is it in council's best interest to, to, to throw that net a little further and see who else is out there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be an RFP process, whatever we end up doing. I mean, that's, uh, you know, generally that's the way we need to proceed. Uh, we have to have a competitive process. People need to sharpen their pencils. Uh, so the moment we come together with a vision, unless we have, uh, you know, defined partners that have put so much resources on the table that it, it just makes sense to kind of work with them, I think the broader vision would be to, to create a request for proposals once we have a, a vision established to uh, to move the uh, move the art sticks on the, on the development. That would be traditionally the way we would operate, but at the same time, you don't want to you don't want to uh, exclude innovation, uh, you know, good ideas that people bring to the table and resources that they bring to the table, or the ownership of property. So we have a number of property owners. Uh, they are obviously uh, you know keen to uh, participate in one manner or another. I think they have an inherent right to be a partner in this. So. It isn't just all about what the city wants. It's about what the other, you know, private developers want as well. And if we can marry all of those uses together in some fashion that uh, makes sense, that's also an option that we can uh, kind of advance this project on. I would imagine the only thing carved in stone right now is that when you get down to actually building here, there's a certain contracting firm in France that I don't think you want involved in this. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, I think anyone that uh, has never built a retail plaza before or a residential complex, we might want to exclude them. The good news, the good news is this is uh, this is going to be a 
you know, predominantly a city-driven process in partnership with the private sector. And we're not we're going to be beholding to uh, an infrastructure Ontario on this one unless they become a significant financial partner. Well, good luck with this. We'll see how Council responds to this later on. Appreciate the time today, Mr. Mayor. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate that, and uh, talk to you soon. You betcha. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, controversy continues. According to an article in the Globe and Mail, uh, Ron Tavener, who is the uh, well new OPP commissioner of Doug Ford, has his way, uh, met with the Premier multiple times leading up to his, uh, his uh, appointment as uh, the new OPP commissioner, including apparently a dinner with uh, one of the hiring officials who vetted Tavener for the job. This uh, does not look kosher to an awful lot of people. Joining us to talk about this, Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, good morning, and thank you for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Listen, the more we find out about this, and, and we're just getting dribs and drabs of information, uh, this, this, this stinks. I mean, there there's just seems as if there's, this was all set up. There, there seemed to be a, a pre-produced idea as to what was going to happen here, which is not the way the process is supposed to work. No, not at all. And uh, there's a bit of new information in this Globe uh, story, but um, the main part of it uh, really is that uh, Ford chose the deputy minister, who was Tavener's former boss, and uh, it was he was chosen in October, and then they changed the job description for the position to make Tavener qualified as a superintendent. Uh, not a deputy commissioner anywhere. And uh, then um, uh, the guy that Ford chose, Di Tomasi, uh, who he chose as deputy minister, is on the, the committee that uh, ends up putting forward Tavener to the cabinet. Um, so the, the Globe reveals that the three of them actually dined together in July, but it wasn't a, a dinner that they arranged. It was a dinner at, a, at an event, and they just happened to sit beside each other. Um, so it's not quite uh, a kind of smoking gun where they had dinner right when the interview process was on or something like that. But it just adds to the suspicions that um, this was all uh, prearranged and that Doug Ford intervened entirely in this whole process to ensure that his friend would get the job. And that's what the Integrity Commissioner is investigating and has the full powers to find out uh, what other steps might have been taken by the Premier. And by the way, according to the Globe article, as you know, but just for the sake of our listeners, uh, the, the event that uh, you're referring to, of course, was the uh, annual Toronto Police Chief Invitational uh, Golf Tournament in support of Victim Services in Toronto. Uh, but it's interesting, when uh, when the Globe talked to the people that were organizing that event, nobody seemed to know who invited Doug Ford. Uh, he just seemed to show up. Yes, and uh, that is, um, and he showed up just very soon after being elected, and yeah, I mean, that's something that can be investigated again. If if he was actually invited by Di Tomasi and Tavner to come to the event and sit between them, then uh, <clears throat> that makes it worse in terms of an event leading up to the appointment. Um, we already know, uh, no one's denied it, that uh, Tavner and Ford are longtime close friends. And that's why uh, Democracy Watch's position has been from the very beginning when we filed the first complaint about this with the Integrity Commissioner, that Ford attending the Cabinet meeting uh, where the appointment decision was was approved by the Cabinet is enough as uh, as a violation of the uh, provincial government ethics law. And anything else that he would have done uh, in addition to that would just make the violation worse. 
Well, and, and there's there's the perception of integrity as, as well as obviously you like to see integrity in the process, but there needs to be a perception of it too. And and invariably, Duff, and you've seen this happen with elected officials in the past, if there's even a sniff that there could be a potential conflict of interest, uh, what usually happens is that elected official will recuse themselves from the whole process and simply say, I'm not going to get involved in this and let you know, let the process unfold as it should, but I won't vote on it, et cetera, et cetera. And we've seen councils at, at the municipal level, we've seen politicians at the provincial and federal level do that. Uh, it seems to me, though, from what we know so far, that Ford did not only not recuse himself, he seemed to delve <clears throat> into this thing with both feet. Well, he says he wasn't involved in uh, anything before the cabinet meeting uh, where the approval was made, and he's called the committee that selected Tavener as the person uh, independent. Um, Except he that actually, he, he kind of stacked the deck there, didn't he? <clears throat> well, he did do something, which is, uh, as far as, uh, I mean, I am I am guessing, but um, he, he did appoint D. Tomasi, and I'm guessing that uh, it's not just definite that D. Tomasi as Deputy Minister of Community Safety would be on the selection committee. So I'm guessing that decision also came out of... Uh, Ford's office. Um, and uh, by doing that, as you say, that kind of stacked the deck in Tavner's favor because D. Tomasi was Tavner's former boss. And um, then the, the, the rest are open questions. What directions did they give to the search uh, firm that was hired? So the uh, cabinet and Ford have claimed that the search firm was the one that decided to change the job description so that Tavner would be qualified. Um, that's a bit hard to believe, given the description was changed two days after the job was posted. It's also hard to believe the excuse they're giving, which is that it was to broaden the pool of applicants, because two days after you post a job, you, were, you wouldn't know how broad a pool you would have of applicants. You'd know after 30 days or 60 days, but you wouldn't know after two days. And then uh, the uh, uh, deputy RCMP commissioner who came for Bill Blair um, he's in a conflict of interest, so his claims should also be explored, of course, by the Integrity Commissioner, not just accepted at face value because he was applying for the job, but he says that uh, that uh, one of the chief uh, staff people for the Premier, Dean French, was slated to be at his interview and then suddenly didn't show up. Um, but he was told that he was going to be there, and that would be direct intervention by Ford's office in the process. So... Lots for the Integrity Commissioner to investigate, and hopefully he'll do his job thoroughly and and properly and request emails and BlackBerry pins, if anyone's using a BlackBerry, and all communications and phone logs uh, between everyone involved, to uh, as well as meetings and interviewing everyone involved to determine exactly what happened and when it happened. How much sway does, it, does a premier, whether it's Doug Ford or anybody else for that matter, Duff, have uh, w- with senior officials like this? Because, uh, I mean, when he took over, it seemed pretty obvious, and he was only in office a short period of time, that he was butting heads with the current OPP commissioner at that time for whatever reason. I, and I guess one of the reasons why, I think you and I discussed this a, a few weeks ago, uh, the OPP commissioner did not acquiesce to some of the requests that, that uh, Ford is alleged to have made, including a, 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 a minivan or a, some sort of a recreational vehicle. And I guess he didn't like the people that were on his security detail. So they, there seemed to be some, some, some friction there between the two of them uh, right from the get-go. Yes, and those claims about uh, are made by Bill Blair again. So shouldn't be taken at face value, but should be investigated in terms of the spending uh, issue uh, the special spending that that uh, Ford is 
alleged to have requested um, that uh, should be investigated by the Auditor General. And I believe the RCM, uh, the NDP has filed a complaint also with the RCMP to determine whether there's any breach of trust in trying to uh, hide the spending, which is the allegation again from Bill Blair that there was a request to actually keep the spending off the books. Um, you know, the Deputy Minister, uh, Di Tomasi, that Ford appointed in October and then was on the selection committee for uh, selecting the new OPP commissioner, deputy ministers don't have any independence from uh, a minister. They can, they're serving at the pleasure of uh, the minister in the cabinet and can be fired for any, at any time for any reason. So there's no independence there, which is, again, why I question the, in, the claim that the selection committee was independent of the cabinet. Um, the search firm that was hired to uh, look for candidates, they are serving on contract to the cabinet. So they don't have independence either. When you're serving on contract to someone, you, you do what they say because you're hired by them to do a job and they're the ones directing you on how to do the job. So no independence there as well. The OPP commissioner, there has to be as much independence as possible. Um, the government may approve the uh, the person, but if there's even the appearance of a conflict of interest, as you mentioned earlier, then the minister or the premier should be stepping aside because this is the top cop in the province and they're the frontline enforcers and investigators of violations of laws that apply to cabinet ministers, including the premier and, and all the cabinet staff as well. So uh, if you want to have, I mean, you can't even have the hint of uh, any bias in choosing that person or any uh, connection that they have. So even if Doug Ford didn't take part in this process at all, it would still be a problem to have a close friend of his as the top cop in the province, because if there were allegations against an opposition party politician or staffer, then there people would say, well, there's an appearance of bias in terms of the investigation of that person because they're an opposition party member and, and, the same if there was an investigation about the premier or any cabinet ministers or any of his cabinet staff or, or top government officials. Well, and we've seen examples of that. I mean, you know, this is not just a philosophical discussion we're having here. Uh, the McGuinney government was, was investigated by the OPP about the gas plant situation and the Wynn government about what they thought were some, some you know, uh, nasty things going on in the by-election up in Sudbury. Uh, and, and even then, there was some ac- accusations, of course, about, well, you know, they're biased. But there wasn't. They, they, you know, these guys are doing their job. The OPP did their investigations on this. But if, if the top cop in the OPP is Doug Ford's best buddy, and, uh, and all of a sudden the OPP are asked to investigate this, I, I think it, you're right, Duff. It calls into question just how independent and how objective is that investigation going to be. Yes, and, and the Supreme Court has ruled... Uh, in several cases, that you can't even have the appearance of bias. Perception is very important in uh, the enforcement of the law, of course, for obvious reasons, because no one can tell what's going on in someone's head. No one can do a Vulcan mind meld. Nobody is Dr. Spock and able to determine that, oh, this person is acting objectively and not doing something because of bias. And that's why you can't even have the appearance of bias. Uh, And someone has to step aside when they have that appearance of bias, because uh, you can never. They can always claim, "No, I'm doing this for the right reasons," but you can't tell because you can't tell what's going on in their head. So you know we've have this problem provincially, not just with this appointment, but with other appointments that Ford has made. Demarcus Watts has filed a complaint about his appointment of 
the U.S. Uh, trade representative for Ontario, because he was uh, on the campaign for, for Doug Ford. So, again, that's a biased appointment. Uh, Jenny Byrne has just been appointed by Ford to the Ontario Energy Board. Again, she was his uh, one of his chief staff people. That's a biased appointment also, and, and to an, another body that enforces the law. And the law, in the case of Energy Board, applies to Ontario Hydro, which is uh, partially owned by the government. So um, that lot, I, Doug Ford doesn't seem to get it, that you can't just do patronage and crony appointments. I mean, they've been done throughout history in Canada, and surprisingly few of them challenged. But it's unethical, and Democracy West's position is against the provincial government ethics law. We're seeing the same problem at the federal level. We have the in court right now. Uh, challenges of the Trudeau cabinet's appointment of the federal ethics commissioner and lobbying commissioner, because both of them were investigating situations involving Prime Minister Trudeau and uh, some of his cabinet ministers when the cabinet appointed them. And you can't do that. You can't choose your judge right in the middle of an investigation. That's akin to what Trump did in the U.S. when he fired the head of the FBI in the midst of the investigation into his and his colleagues' dealings uh, possibly with Russia during the the U.S. election time period. You can't have these situations with law enforcement. You can't even have the hint of bias. Well, and he doubled down on that, obviously, when he fired Jeff Sessions and put uh, one of his acolytes in there uh, as as, as also, the yes. acting attorney general. And and so uh, I, I hate to I know people hate to see these analogies drawn between what's going on in the Trump administration and what Doug Ford's doing. But I mean, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I mean, there are some similarities in attitude, if nothing else. Indeed. Well, uh, and, but uh, the, what's similar is that these are law enforcement positions. And again, if you have even the hint of bias, you're undermining uh, law enforcement. <clears throat> to have a democracy, you have to have what's called the rule of law, which means that the law applies to even the most powerful people in uh, a jurisdiction like Ontario. And um, it has to be applied equally to everybody. Nobody gets off just because they have power or because they have ties uh, of any kind to law enforcement. And that's why you can't even have the appearance of bias, because it undermines the rule of law and undermines our democracy. And that's what Trump's done in the U.S., and that's what the appointment of Tavener uh, would do in, uh, in Ontario, because he's a close friend of the premier. And you would have that appearance of bias in every OPP police investigation from then on. Duff, how much uh, weight does an integrity commissioner report have? Well, we'll see. Um, he, unfortunately, because of a big flaw with the system, can only recommend a penalty. Uh, he can't reverse a decision, but uh, it will make it very politically costly if he finds that uh, Doug Ford violated the provincial uh, government ethics law. Um, in terms of penalty, his, the recommendation of the Integrity Commissioner goes to the legislature, where the Conservatives have a uh, majority. And then it would up, be up to Conservative MPPs to decide whether to penalize Doug Ford if he is found in violation. And that's obviously a bad situation because, once again, you have a bias. Uh, those are Conservative MPPs judging a Conservative Premier. And politicians, because they're partisan and political should never be in the position to judge another politician because they always make decisions based on politics as opposed to the law and the evidence. 
It's it's one of the I think as you mentioned one of the faults of the, of the whole purpose of integrity commission. And so we've seen this happen at the municipal level too, where uh, they'll do a report and it goes back to council. Well, it's council that they're investigating. So I mean, what are they going to no, do? Exactly, it's very bad system. These people are given the role to judge whether someone's violated the law, and like other judges, they should also be given the power to issue the penalty. It just doesn't make sense to have the recommendation from a judge as to whether someone's violated the law, go back to uh, a committee or, or a legislature full of politicians to make the final decision on, on the, the penalty. It's, I mean, it's a kangaroo court. Whenever politicians are judging each other, that's the definition of a kangaroo court because they make decisions on the basis of politics, not the law and not the evidence. Are you surprised, uh, as the Globe and Mail article pointed out today, that uh, the Integrity Commissioner has yet to talk to the Premier about this? Uh, I would have thought that uh, that would be a place to start. Um, But if you look again at the investigation of Trump in the U.S. uh, with with, uh, Mueller, Mueller hasn't talked to Trump either. He's been talking to everyone around Trump. And getting all the stories from them before talking to the person that's facing the allegation. Uh, it's not a bad way to sort of build a case because if, you know, 12 people in a row tell you this is what happened and then you go and talk to the premier and he says, no, that's not what happened. Then that's almost a better way to be constructing your investigation than talking to the person alleged to have done wrong first and getting a story from him. Um, that he may then try and get others to repeat when you when you go and talk to them. So um, as long as he does talk to the premier and get every piece of communications between the premier and anyone in the premier's office and anyone else involved in cabinet or the selection process, that's very key. He cannot leave uh, any of those communications out of his investigation because um, this is the kind of thing that, it would be done by a BlackBerry pin, uh, which is not, uh, can, you can't find uh, and obtain those through the Access to Information Act, and the minister's offices are not subject to the Access to Information Act. So he needs to be looking at all those communications because uh, Ford would, if he did intervene, would, um, unless, unless he really doesn't understand conflict of interest, wouldn't have been doing it in some blatant, obvious, out-in-the-open way. Although Bill Blair has claimed that he did by having Dean French plan to be attending an interview with him, which would be a blatant and out-in-the-open violation because uh, it would be so directly intervening in the process. But as you know from your your legal background, obviously, I mean, ignorance of the law is is not a defense. And, well, we'll see what happens to say about this. Duff, we're just about out of time on this. Uh, continued good luck with this. Uh, I'd like to see uh, the commissioner obviously turn over a lot of stones on this, and I look forward to the report and look forward to our conversations again in the future. Thanks. Yes, we have many more complaints coming, so we'll keep you up to date. <laughs> okay, thanks again. Thank Duff Conniger, co-founder of Democracy Watch. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a, another raucous weekend uh, south of the border in the U- U.S. political scene. Obviously, the discussion about the uh, the government shutdown and the wall uh, and that seemed to, of course, grab the headlines for the better part of last week, but uh, it was uh, superseded over the weekend by, again, the Russia connection. Uh, stories in both the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post uh, suggesting that uh, Donald Trump took extensive steps to hide details about his talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, Trump defended himself over the weekend, though. 
I don't care. I mean, I had a conversation like every president does. I do it with all countries. We had a great conversation. Uh, that was uh, on Fox News. Where else, of course, uh, with uh, justice with Judge Jeannie, uh, Jeannie rather, of course, uh, who always give uh, the president a safe landing and a soft landing for anything he wants to come on and talk about. But there were some concerns in both the stories in the, uh, the Times and the Post uh, about the methodologies that, uh, first of all, that uh, Trump actually gathered up the, the talking notes uh, from his meetings with Putin, the five meetings he's had with Putin so far. Uh, the protocol is, is much different than that. Joining us to talk about uh, the events and uh, and the ramifications is uh, Elliot Tepper, who is a professor emeritus of political science at Carleton University, specializing, of course, on uh, politics, terrorism, and U.S. politics, which all seem to be interrelated these days, Elliot. Thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us yeah, today. Good morning, Bill. Interesting uh, articles in both the Post and the, and the Times this weekend. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, this story goes on and on and in so many different directions, but the core of it is that America's democracy was attacked by Russia, uh, unambiguously, there, there's too much evidence for that now. And the g- question all along has been, since it did help Donald Trump, what is Donald Trump's role or those around him, what was their role in this attempt to influence how America's democracy works? Well, and let's talk about methodology for a second. And we just heard Trump's uh, rebuttal, of course, about the the article uh, that he was hiding notes and hiding uh, details about this. Uh, as I understand it, Elliot, the protocol usually is, yeah, U.S. presidents do meet usually one-on-one with many world leaders, and, and but there are notes taken. And, and that's essentially for the sake of, of the staff and for the various departments, of course, so there's some sort of a recognition on what the president talked about and what policy is supposed to be. Uh, so it has happened. Even things that we're told that were confidential are still spread within certain uh, U.S. departments. Uh, Trump apparently doesn't allow that. He, he, there is nothing. There is no record of any of these conversations with Vladimir Putin, including, we're told, he even took the notes from the interpreter, who was the only other person in the room, and did not let him talk about this. Yes, yeah, the protocol, of course, can be adjusted by the president at the president's discretion, but the norm, I don't know if we can't use that term, but the norm is there would also be senior aides there. There'd be an official note taker. There would actually be some possibility of the two sides comparing notes. So there's an agreed upon text that could be released afterward as to the a short text as to uh, the content of the meeting. In this case, uh, apparently nobody in the American government knows what went on inside that room other than the interpreter. And there's five meetings. So this is a this is not a one-off situation. There are apparently no senior people involved in the American government who knows what goes on when these two leaders meet and talk. And if the translator's notes are then taken, and the president of the United States tells the translator, "You are not to discuss this," there's really only the Russians really know what's going on, and not the American government inside those meetings. And interestingly enough, the, 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 the twist I found bizarre in the Post story, uh, Elliot, was uh, the CIA and other uh, security agencies and intelligence agencies are actually trolling the Russian media now, trying to get some sense as to what happened in the meetings, because they do talk about it. And they, hey, we won this and we got this concession, etc. No word at all from the White House or the Trump administration as to what's going on. Well, but probably, apparently the you know, Russians are talking. It's probably beyond trolling social media. I suspect uh, there's reports now that the clandestine conversations among and between Russians afterwards are monitored as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is uh, beyond social and public. This is private and intelligence work. And uh, so there, there's an attempt to find out. But, of course, as has been pointed out, there's no reason to suspect, uh, expect, 
that those conversations would be open and frank, uh, knowing they might well be monitored. So, and again, this this whole idea about perception, I guess, is is what we're talking about here. And, and, and clearly, I think that's what the Post article is underscoring right now, is there seems to be something clandestine going on. And now there's, there's no proof of that yet, except with some of the things that they have uncovered from the Russian media uh, and some of their, their, uh, their security sources and intelligence sources over there. Uh, but it, it, let's... Cut right to the quick here, Elliot. It's not a pretty picture, and it's not a very encouraging picture uh, when there seems to be very strong evidence that the Russians, of course, meddled in the U.S. election. Uh, Trump always has seemingly, in the last two years, taken pro-Russian stances uh, to the point where the Times already mentioned that that Trump is at the point now where he's really parroting Putin's foreign policy uh, initiatives. Well, it goes even beyond that. The, the Times report was that a counterintelligence um, operation was put in place before uh, before the Mueller investigation took it over. The counterintelligence is in addition to the obstruction of justice investigation, which was underway. Once Comey was fired, you know, the person who's it, who possibly is investigating the president and his associates is suddenly fired. There's a prima facie case right there of potential, potential obstruction of justice. But it, then it also is noted that that means that the investigation into what the Russians were doing uh, is also cut off, and that becomes a national security as opposed to an obstruction of justice issue, and that's what the, the headlines were over the weekend. And, and we have to wonder about uh, the FBI's involvement in these sorts of investigations, uh, but the actions of the president, obviously, you would think are, are going to lead some people to suggest that, look, at, you know, there's, there's something going on here. Uh, I, I know that, he, again, on the White House lawn, he was bragging about the fact that he's been tougher on Russia than any other president, yes. uh, he says, in history now, of course, always yes. you know, used to the bombast. But the, the record shows, Elliot, that the sanctions, for instance, that were put in place against the Russians uh, were put in place by the Congress. The, 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 tr- the president yes. was opposed to them and yes, vehemently opposed to, to them. Uh, put them there. The, um, this whole investigation which goes well beyond the president himself, and, and we don't know if it actually reaches the president, and, and that's really what the Mueller investigation, among others, is going to prove. There's been ever-thickening evidence that people around the president, uh, when he was campaigning, uh, that before he became a politician, while he was campaigning, and even after he was president, that people close to the president, to Donald Trump and to the Trump organization, had a very thick relationship, to put it <laughs> succinctly, with Russian operatives. We know that Paul Manafort, apparently, while he was campaign chairman, released polling. This is just one incident. Internal polling data from the Republican Party on how the Trump campaign saw the election going to Ukrainians connected to Russian intelligence, which could be used, potentially, to really uh, make the counter the Russian interference in the election much more pointed, much more effective. All of this is supposition. We don't have, a lot, but this is just one of, I think there's now up to 17 people around the president. Coincidentally, there's also 17 separate investigations apart from whatever Mueller does into the president and the Trump organization and people around the, the Trump uh, administration. So there's a very thick nexus and there are a lot of questions as to why and as, as even just to bring this more pointedly, even the announcement most recently that America is going to pull its troops out of Syria precipitously, without any quid pro quo, without saying, okay, we'll pull our troops out if Iran 
pulls back, for example. But the great deal maker could may say, yeah, we'll pull out, but you've got to give us something. He didn't. All of action after action after action seems to benefit the Russian interests in the world and in America. And we know that there's been longstanding financial connections between Russians and the Trump organization and Trump's aspirations inside Moscow, inside Russia. So all of that is leading to this uh, to this basically storm cloud that's hanging over the president. But this interesting twist, though, the, about the FBI investigation, because yeah. uh, we knew that Mueller obviously was investigating Russian involvement in this, but to, to actually know that there's a counterintelligence aspect to this investigation, and now we don't know if Mueller's continuing with that because we don't know a whole lot about what's going on. As you mentioned, the leak that we even had about Manafort didn't come from Mueller. No. It came from Manafort's lawyers, uh, and, and, and again, they kind of screwed that thing up. Uh, and so you have to wonder just how deeply this investigation is going on and, and that there's a lot more to this than whether or not they were trying to build a Trump Tower in Moscow and, and looking for favor from the Russian government as a result. There's a lot of uh, suggestions, hints, and uh, by the way, a lot of specialized expertise within the Mueller team on money laundering, uh, on Russian connections and oligarchs to the Trump organization and businesses related to Trump. So there's a whole financial impropriety, if I could put it gently, component. So the Mueller investigation has been the tightest ship, uh, certainly in the, in the Trump era. Uh, everything leaks, but not the Mueller investigation. It is uh, suggested it's likely to uh, release its report. That Mueller report is likely to come out, assuming it isn't squashed, uh, probably in February, because Mueller, unlike Comey, before him would not want to be seen to be interfering in an election year and the election year is 2020 so whatever the Mueller has is likely to be coming out it's suggested uh, fairly soon what's going to happen from the congressional standpoint that there is a possibility of course that uh, as you say this report from from uh, Mueller may actually never see the light of day as far as the public is concerned uh, because it, he reports to the Attorney General, who, right. and, and obviously the acting Attorney General is, is a Trump acolyte, Whitaker. Uh, they may, in fact, have a new Attorney General in place by the time the report comes out, although I don't think the timing is really going to be there. But Whitaker could just arbitrarily decide, well, this is uh, this is a confidential document. Uh, there's you know security measures. I'm not going to release this. Yes. Uh, do, does the Democratic-controlled Congress have any sway at all to try to get to that, so, any of that information? Well, actually... The, there are so many investigations going on now that, in part, that have been hived off from Mueller to, to uh, civil and criminal courts, that investi- and inside the FBI, things are going on. Those will continue no matter what happens to Mueller. So there's, in terms of politics and jeopardy and impeachment and all that, with or without Mueller, that's going to go ahead. But Mueller's likely to be a, a blockbuster. We don't know what's going to come out of that. Uh, could it be released by the Democrats? There will be a huge constitutional tussle over that issue. Uh, the, the Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell said, we will not give protection to the Mueller investigation. We will not go along with the House. This was when it was under Republican control in the House. We won't pass legislation to protect Mueller because it's not necessary. Mueller, uh, that report's going to come out automatically, so don't worry about it. That may become harder and harder for Mitch McConnell to sustain. There's a guy who's in the corner, uh, backed himself into a corner, really, not just on the Russian issue, but certainly on the uh, the wall issue and the and the government shutdown. 
uh, by refusing, basically, to be a participant in this whole thing. And, and his rationale is, well, there's nothing really that I can do. Well, there's everything he can do. I mean, he's, he's got the hammer right now. If, if they introduce this legislation into the Senate, this, this whole charade is over, but he refuses to do that. Yes, uh, you would need uh, a supermajority so that Trump couldn't veto whatever the, the House and the Senate both agree upon, and the Senate has to have enough Republicans supporting the Democratic minority to be sure it's a supermajority so it can't be vetoed. Yes, um, uh, you and I have suggested in long conversations over the years that uh, I've suggested that this should be viewed as much as a, a, a Pence-Mitch McConnell administration as a Trump administration because of the connections there, uh, the power that's, that's wielded. No, Mitch McConnell, I'll, I'll give him full marks, he did pass legislation, unanimously oversaw legislation in the Senate that was agreed upon with Vice President Pence and apparently Jared Kushner, and the president backed off. So now he's saying, I'm not going to do anything unless Trump puts it in writing that he's going to sign what we send him. And until then, I'm backing out, but he can't carry this on. But linking up these conversations, the longer we are talking about a government shutdown, that means that uh, the Democrats are thrown off their legislative agenda in the House. They cannot get everything underway they had hoped to. And we're not talking about Mueller. We're not talking about Russia. So this is a grand diversion that works well for the political, for the political interest of Donald Trump. Should Americans be concerned, uh, and let's go back to that issue about the legislation that was passed about uh, the shutdown and, and the deal that was made that Pence agreed to and McConnell agreed to as well, uh, that really the, the US, United States is essentially being governed right now by Ann Coulter and Rush Limbaugh, I mean, because they went ballistic about this and said that the president would be weak if he signed this bill, yeah. and, and he acquiesced. I mean, he doesn't like to be told that. He wants to play to his base all the time. Uh, so it, it just seems as, well, we already know that he has evening conversations with Sean Hannity every night. Uh, and, and with a number of other people, of course, uh, on, on Fox News about policy. But it's, it's a little chilling to think that those are the people that are actually having the most influence over the president. Yes, but, but let's broaden that out. Those people are a direct conduit to that base. And the base is the, the ultimate power that Donald Trump has is his the loyalty. And we're not talking about his personal base, the Republican Party base and the Fox News network and... and the other parts of the eco, Rush Limbaugh and all that, that echo chamber, as long as the Republican Party voters stay solid behind Trump, that's his actual only source of, of real power. And Fox News is the conduit for that. They also are, you know, it's an interactive process. They, <laughs> they deliver the message and back and forth. So uh, it's, I think a little, a little misleading is my comment to say, yes, let's focus on Fox. We have to focus on Fox as to why they're important, and that's why they're important. That's his remaining power. Elliot Tepper uh, from uh, Carleton University. As always, Elliot, thanks so much for this. Uh, it's uh, going from bizarre to uh, ridiculous, but uh, that's uh, U.S. politics these days, isn't it? Stay tuned. You betcha. Thanks again, Elliot. We'll talk soon. Okay. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.